0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 2. The book of Romans, chapter 2. We've had two lessons in the first chapter. This will be the third lesson in the book of Romans. If you'll notice in the first verse of the second chapter, it says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Notice that the word therefore would connect us with what has gone before, as it usually does. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. And we've been studying about the heathen and about the terrible sins and wickedness that God condemned and how God in these terrible sins had turned these people over to a reprobate mind, it says in verse 28, to do those things which are not convenient and how that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and how that they were exceedingly sinful in the sight of God. And the Bible says God gave them up. And we find that they had gone too far. And yet, we come to the second chapter, and we're not dealing with the heathen anymore Uh, primarily. It seems that Paul is turning to the Jews and saying that you that are Jews, and even not only just the Jews, but you that are profess to be Christians sometimes even, you're inexcusable, or men that try to justify themselves on the basis of their own goodness or their own works or their own sinless perfection, and do not count themselves as sinners, he says, you're inexcusable. So that the Jews, I believe the ones that are addressed here basically and primarily are the Jews, but then it includes the moral man that would fall into the same category and try to justify himself on the basis of his own goodness. Because, see, the Jews thought they were doing, doing all right. And if God would condemn the heathen and the very most ungodly of men, surely he would not condemn them. And that's a way sometimes professing Christians that are not really born again, those that have just uh, come to church now and then and, and try to to do good and try to justify themselves by works, and try to say, well, now, I don't do like other men do, and have never really been born again, and seen themselves to be really sinners needing to be saved by grace. Now, if you're a sinner saved by grace, it's a different story. You know you're not justified by uh, the works of the law, but you're justified by Christ and by the hearing of faith. But if you uh, can picture that men sometimes try to justify themselves on the basis of the fact that they're not as bad as the most wicked in the world. You see, they compare themselves to themselves. Have you ever seen people that say, Well, now, I don't uh, go to church, or I do attend church, but I don't uh, believe in this or that or the other. There's fundamentals of the faith. And after all, I don't believe in salvation by grace through faith. We have a lot of churchgoers in the world today that when you mention being saved, they don't know anything about it. They don't know that you have to believe on Christ to be saved. They think just merely going to church is all right, or they think merely belonging to a lodge or some uh, good uh, organization is all right. That, that justifies them. That's their religion. And you find that they do this, and they say, well, the reason I know that I'm all right is because I'm not, a, I'm not an outcast of society, I'm not a heathen, I live in a Christian nation, and my parents were good people, and after all, I pay my honest debts and I try to do the best I can. And they say, well, that makes them all right. That does not make them all right because the Bible says here, now look, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Don't we have an illustration of it when these brought Uh, These brought the woman that was taken in adultery to Jesus, and they said this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Remember, Jesus uh, wrote on the ground, and uh, as they pointed their finger at her and condemned her and judged her, Jesus said to them, finally, he says, He that is without sin among you. And the Greek word indicates that very same sin of adultery. Now, they had not all been caught in the act of adultery. But he says, He that is without this sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And they went away. Why? Even though they had not outwardly and openly committed the sin they were condemning her of, they had inwardly committed that sin. And they knew they were guilty in the sight of God. And their conscience smote them, and they went away. Because, you see, sin reaches deeper than the outward act or deed. It reaches to the very heart. The Bible says, "...he that hateth his brother without a cause is a murderer." And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So you cannot hate, can you? And you cannot commit sin on the inside and expect uh, to judge the other fellow for committing it on the outside. And when we see things that other people do and we'd like to do them ourselves in the way of vice and sin, we're just as guilty as they are. See, we don't like to admit that, do we? You see on television some of these uh, luscious-looking uh, soap operas that go on, you know, and you see all the uh, affairs going on, and pretty lady, or whatever, or a gentleman. You say, my, you, you think that you could be there, and you, you could enjoy there condition, their circumstance. But if you do, you're guilty of the same sin. See, you're you're the same as doing that yourself when you, when you lust after that particular thing. That's why Jesus said, He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. He just thought about it, and he lusted. Now then, the evil thoughts come across your mind that are not sinful unless you entertain them and let them. And let them have a way into your heart, because you cannot help but see evil. You cannot help but uh, because it's so uh, much around you. But you can, as the old saying goes, you can let a bird fly over your head, but you don't have to let him stop and build a nest there. And that's exactly the way it is about sin. The evil thought can cross your mind, and you can say, like the Bible teaches, for it to get away and. And tell the Lord that this is not good, that you, you have this evil thought, and you want to think right and do right, and you want pure thoughts. The Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So anyway, let's go on with this. Therefore thou art inexcusable, old man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. How many times have we condemned someone else for something that we are guilty of ourselves? We do that. The Jews did that to the heathen. The moral man does that to the to the unbelieving and, and to the outcast, the so-called good fellow, who gives trouble. The fellow that thinks he's better than someone else and doesn't realize that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which uh, Paul will bring us to in the third chapter. So we find, <clears throat> I want us to notice, we gave you twenty-three indictments in the last verses of the uh, first chapter. <clears throat> of uh, Romans. From verses 29 through 32, there were twenty-three indictments. And they did not only apply to those that were of the heathen, so to speak, but they applied its brought over, "...therefore thou art inexcusable, O man." So these indictments are carried over into the second chapter, and those that would justify themselves and condemn someone else. I want you to notice four things in the early part of this chapter. It says in verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. In fact, you find it in this verse. First of all, we're sure that God is going to judge and that He has judgment. We're sure that His judgment is according uh, to truth. There is a judgment of God. We're sure of that. And it's according to truth. And that there's a penalty in judgment against those that commit such things. There's a penalty attached to it. I want us to notice also that we find in this chapter many things concerning the judgment of God. First of all, in verse 2 again, it's according to truth. God's judgment is according to truth. His word is truth. He will judge. He will judge in truth. And then the second thing I want you to notice, look down at verse 5. We'll get all of these, and then we'll come back and teach verse by verse. Verse 5 says that uh, after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up uh, thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that God's judgment is according to accumulated guilt, that a man may accumulate guilt, just like you would lay up money in the bank or in savings and it would accumulate an interest. The, the same way the man that sins in the sight of God and keeps on sinning with a hard, an impenitent, unrepentant heart, he's treasuring up, he's laying up, and God's going to pay it back with interest. Wrath against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 6, there's another thing about God's judgment. It's according to works. <coughs> Who will render to every man according to his deeds? God is going to judge every man according to his deeds, according to his works. Look at verse eleven. God's judgment is without respect of persons, for there is no for there is no respect of persons with God. It says in verse eleven. You know, man's judgment is biased, isn't it? And in respect of persons, you ever seen them? Uh, well, we know it happens every day in the courts of law fellow be brought before the judge, and if he's an outstanding citizen or has a lot of uh, pull and, and he has a lot of prestige and, and everything in the community, well, the judge say, oh, let's just forget this ticket or let's just forget what's happened here. You go on, we'll just forget all about it. But you take the old boy that doesn't have any protection and uh, that can be easily run over and put down. Stepped on, tromped on, well, they'll just give him, they'll read his rights and give him what's written in the book, won't they? But God's judgment is not with respect of persons. God sees all of us alike, rich or poor, bond or free. And so his is with our respect of persons. Look in verse 13 again about God's judgment. It says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Notice that. According to performance, and not knowledge, it's the way we obey. Now this does not mean that a man is saved by his works. But it means that the saved man demonstrates and evidences his faith by his works. Isn't that what James says? Show me thy faith by thy works. And that's what we do. We show that we have faith and demonstrate it and evidence it by what we are. But it doesn't mean that a man is justified by his works. See? For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. But the Bible tells us, if you turn to the third chapter quickly, you'll find it says <clears throat> in verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul continues to tell us in the third chapter that no one is actually justified by the law, but the man that is justified by grace through faith will certainly demonstrate the fact that he's a doer of the Word and that he lives by the, the things of God. And you cannot be justified for, by the law, for no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. You see, none of us are perfect doers of the Word, are we? So we're all guilty before God, the third chapter tells us. Another thing I want you to see about judgment is this in verse 16. God is going to judge the secrets of men. It says, "...in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." That's what he's going to do. The very thoughts and secrets of men's heart are going to be brought to judgment. And then verses 17 through 27 show us uh, God's certainty of judgment even upon the Jews that rest in the law. And that his judgment is according to reality, not to religious profession. They profess to be all right in the sight of God. They were Jews. But if you read these verses, you'll see that he expects there to be reality in a person's life. And you can go on down and read them. Let's read a few verses anyway and see. Uh, Verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Oh yeah, that's fine. And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge, uh, of and of the truth in lo- in the law. <clears throat> now then, look at the next verse. <clears throat> thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest Thou not thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as is written. Look at that. What is, what is he saying? What's Paul saying? He's saying, You claim to be teachers of the law, you came to be instructors of babes of the foolish and a teacher of babes. You claim to have everything going and you're justified in the sight of God, but what you condemn in the other fellow, (coughs) he says, you're guilty of yourself. You're inexcusable, old man. And that's what happens many times. And that's what the Jews were guilty of. They could condemn the heathen for certain things and yet justify themselves in doing the very same thing, which was just as much a sin in the sight of God, and even more so. You know why it was more so? because they had the knowledge of the written law and they knew they were disobeying. Now then, the heathen have the law written in their hearts and they know that, and are conscious of the fact that they sin against God. Did you know that? You take where missionaries go in parts of the world where they have not the Word of God and have not been taught the Ten Commandments, don't know anything about the New Testament even, and don't know anything about the Word of God. Yet they know, many of them know, that it's not right for this one to go over there and take that other fellow's wife. They know they've done wrong. And, and they won't do that. They'll do it here in America, Christian America, but they won't do it over there. And they don't have that law. And you find that that's true. And missionaries can testify to the fact that they have a consciousness of, of wrong and what's right, even though they haven't been taught because God has written it upon their hearts. And they know it. And we'll read that in a moment. But let's go back. First of all, let me give you one more thing. The real thing that matters about God's judgment, that it's not according to ritualism or formalism or ceremonialism, and you see that in verse 29, look, verse 29, "...but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God." You see, he's not talking here about A Jew outwardly in the circumcisional rites, as you find in verse 28. Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. We're not going to go by ritualism, by form, by ceremonialism. God says, the real one that I'm looking to is that one which has the circumcised heart. That it's a heart condition, it's a spiritual matter. The one that is really a born-again child of God is what Paul is finally driving at in verse 29. Let's go back and pick up with our verse-by-verse study uh, in verse 3 now. We dealt with verse 1 and 2. Look at verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, do you think that because... Others do these things openly and outwardly. And you're guilty of the same thing, even though you've done it in secret. And even though that you have not been outwardly and openly con- condemned, do you think that by this you're going to escape the judgment of God? Surely not. You see, God knows more than just the outward. We see only the outward. We might judge people and say, well, this fellow is sin because I saw him sin." And I know, it's evident, circumstances prove it. And maybe he was even seen, eyewitnesses prove it. But on the other hand, what about the man that has sinned in his heart against God, and he has condemned the other fellow? Do you think that he shall escape the judgment of God? The Bible says no. He's going to re- God is going to judge, judge him. The implication and indication is that God will judge him. Thinkest thou that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? The answer is obvious that surely God will not permit him to escape judgment. And you know, this really brings it down close to home, doesn't it? Now then verse four. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What purpose is God's goodness and long suffering and God's riches and mercy unto us? It's to lead us to repentance, to give us space and time and opportunity to repent. And yet men tramp on the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God, don't they? They say, because God has not judged me yet, He's not going to. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. He says, therefore, the heart, listen, singular, Of the sons of men, plural, is fully set in them to do evil. You see what it is? Man says because God hasn't judged yet, that surely he's going to forget all about it. God doesn't have to be reminded uh, by us that, that men have sinned. He doesn't even have to worry about whether he will forget our sins or not. He will not forget them. There's only one way God will forget them. You know how it is? If they're under the blood of Jesus Christ, and then they're forgotten and forever forgotten. He says, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. And God has power to forgive and to forget our sins eternally. You and I may say, well, I'm going to forgive that sin, but I will not forget. That's not the kind of forgiveness God wants. Now then, I know that in your mind you will not forget, for your mind is like a computer, isn't it? And it retains a memory bank there. And even though you want to forget, your, your mind is going to remember it, but you're going to forget it as far as holding any ill feelings. That's real forgiveness. And when we forgive our uh, brother or sister in the church, when we forgive someone round about us, even when we, we forgive our enemies, we forget in the sense that we want revenge or we want to get even, but our mind still retains it your mind retaining it is not a sin because God has given you a mind to remember. In fact, our minds need to remember certain things. But we do not need to remember with a a feeling of of, uh, uh, getting even or revenge because God says that belongs to Him. So let us learn how to forgive and forget as God does. But God has given us... His goodness and mercy and grace and long suffering to lead men to repentance. And yet, men trample on God's goodness. And they think because He is not judged yet that He will forget all about it and He will not judge them. Well, God will not forget the sins of the sinner and He will judge, and there is a day of judgment. In verse 5, it tells us how it will be, and we've already studied it. We'll go on verse by verse exactly. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. They're just laying in store. They're treasuring up. Those who continue to sin and trample on the mercy and grace of God, they're just treasuring up and laying up and putting it in a bank and going to collect it with interest. What? Not that which is good, but the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God. I don't want to collect bad things with interest, do, do we? We may want to put a little money in the bank and, and have a little interest on savings. That would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice to have some things going our way and, and have it build up and increase, but we don't want our uh, sins to build up before God and them to be laid up and laid up and then when the judgment comes it be poured out, and including the interest that's due. And yet, that's exactly what the sinner that is unrepentant and will not turn to God and tramples upon His mercy and grace, that's exactly what He's doing. We find that men go on anyway, don't they? They go on, disregarding God, will not trust Jesus as their Savior, will not put their sins under the blood of Christ. Now, if your sin is under the blood of Christ, you'll not have to worry about it at all. It's covered. It's atoned for. You're redeemed. You're bought, you're purchased, your sins are blotted out as a thick cloud. They're buried in the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far as they removed our transgressions from us. They're gone! Jesus came, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It's taken away. Never to be brought up again. He taketh away. So they're gone forever. You say, well, preacher, what about my present sins? All of your sins are under the blood, but God expects His children to live in respect to Him as children under the Father. And when we do wrong, God deals with us, the Bible says, as with children. And whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And He's going to scourge every son whom He receiveth. So you see, that's the way He deals with us about our sins now. But all of our sins, the penalty to our sins, are under the blood of Christ. Jesus took care of every sin that we ever committed in the past and that we will ever commit in the future. They're under the blood as far as the penalty due. But when we do wrong, God chastens us. He doesn't mete out the penalty of sin because the wages of sin is death, right? If He did, there would be immediate death and immediate judgment and eternal hell. But He doesn't deal with His children in that way. He deals with us as with children, the Bible tells us. But those that have refused Christ, whose sins are not under the blood, He will have to deal with them in final great judgment. And they will be cast out from His presence. Jesus took care of all your sins. You say, well, what about my future sins? Well, all of your sins were in the future when Jesus died for your past, present, and future sins on the cross, weren't they? You were not even born. They were all in the future when He died to atone for them. So even your past sins were in the future when Jesus made atonement on the cross. So he paid for your sins and he paid the complete penalty due your sins. And therefore, the Bible says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He will not even count it to you. Happy is that man that has such forgiveness. And every Christian has that forgiveness in the sight of God. That's why I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. Because your sins are under the blood of Christ. Your past, present, and future. You say, Suppose I do wrong. Suppose I stumble and fall. The Bible tells us, Though he falls, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. The Lord is your keeper. You're kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We must hurry to get on with our lesson. Look at it in verse uh, 6 Who will render to every man according to his deeds? You see? This is going to be the means of judgment. Now then, your deeds as a Christian are works that will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Or you will suffer loss. But what about the deeds of the unbelieving, the unsaved? The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, those wicked dead that stand before that great white throne judgment, they shall be judged every man according to his works. You see, his deeds and works are not under Christ. The Christian's deeds and works are building upon the true foundation, Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. And every man shall receive a reward. And you see, God is going to reward you, or you'll suffer the loss of those rewards as a Christian, but his soul itself shall be saved, yet so by fire, even if he suffer the loss of rewards, because he's a child of God. But not so with the unsaved man. He's going to be judged according to his deeds as well, according to his works, and as far as his works are concerned, they're not even considered as good because they're not done under Christ. They're not done unto the Lord. Now look at verse 7. It shows you in verses 7 through 10 the fruit of the regenerated heart and life, verse 7 especially. And then from verses 8 through 10 it shows you the two lives and the two <clears throat> destinies of the regenerated and the unregenerated. So verse 7 shows you the fruit of the regenerated heart and life. Look at it. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. This is the fruit of a regenerated person. But it says, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, if they do not obey the truth, they have not been saved, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. You see how God puts them both under the same category? The Jew and the Gentile as well. So you have, uh, in verse 10 now, But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. You have the two lives and the two destinies of the regenerated and the unregenerated. This is what Paul is pointing out. He's pointing out that the saved man will have these good things, but the unsaved man will not. And these are evidenced there. For there is no respect of person with God. Between the Jew and the Gentile, they're all the same before God. Just because the Jew had the law didn't make him any better than the Gentile. There was some profit to it because he had the oracles of God. But he had to be judged by the same, he had to be judged according to his uh, life and co- according to his works, and according to his sinfulness. For as many, verse 12, as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. That's the Gentiles, isn't it? And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. That's the Jews. So both are under condemnation. If one doesn't even have the law, he's going to perish without the law. If one has sinned in the law, he, he will be judged by the law, and therefore he'll perish, will he not? Verse verse tw- uh, 13. "...for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified." In other words, if you were going to try to be justified by the law, you would have to do it all to be justified. You wouldn't be able just to hear it. And the Jews that had heard it, they would have to completely obey it in every respect or they'd be guilty of the law. The Bible says that those that have broken one of God's commandments are guilty of all know that no one has ever kept the law of God perfectly but the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't make any difference who He is. And you find that Jesus said, I've given you the law and none of you have kept it. Uh, Stephen preached to the Jews and he said, you received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. If anyone was going to keep the law, the Jew would. And he says, you've not kept it. And you know what they did to him? They stoned him to death because they wanted to justify themselves. Now, let's look at it. Verse 14, it says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Where is it written? Not on tables of stone. But in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. That's why that no man is without excuse before God. For God has showed it unto him that he's sinned. You say, do the heathen, do people that have never heard the gospel know they've sinned? Yes, they know they've sinned. The Bible says they're without excuse, chapter 1. They're without excuse. The Bible says that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. As much light as God has given them, they will not live up to it, and therefore they are without excuse before God. You see, God does not send any person to hell without any knowledge or enlightenment. But he is already condemned because he sinned against God and he knows he sinned against God. You say, even people without the word of God? Yes, because God has revealed a certain amount and given them a certain amount of enlightenment by uh, creation. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork day to day, other speech, night and to night showeth knowledge. There is no land, there is no uh, voice, uh, no place where his voice is not heard. It's all over the world. And so if that person would live up to the light that God has given him, and he would not uh, sin against the enlightenment that he has, God will give him more light. Isn't that what happened to Cornelius? Cornelius didn't know anything about being saved. But the Bible teaches us that Cornelius feared God, and he uh, gave alms, and he did certain things. And, And so God sent him a man that could tell him, The words whereby he and his house could be saved because he lived up to the light that was within him. And you see, God's Word is God is just and righteous. All right, let's go. Uh, Verse 15 says that they have a a law written in their hearts and their thoughts sometimes excuse them or uh, accuse them. You see, when they do wrong, their, their heart and conscience, their thoughts of their heart accuse them when they do wrong, and it excuses them sometimes, trying to justify themselves one way or another. It says in verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. God has a day of judgment, doesn't he? Verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will, and approvest things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art guide of the blind, a light of them that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest to man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou That, that abhorst idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. It is written. Let's stop there a moment. The Jews that claimed to have priority and have the law of God written, and claimed that they were teachers, instructors of foolish, teachers of babes. Yet when they had broken the law, they were the same. They were blaspheming the law of God. They were blaspheming the name of God among the Gentiles. In other words, they were professing to be uh, thus-and-so, and pious, and privileged, and yet sinning against God. Now then, let's not only apply it to the Jew, let's bring it over to uh, professed Christians, Christians today. What happens? What do you have in professed Christendom today? You have people who claim to be Christians and live like the devil, that's what you have. Yeah, people that claim to be Christians and do not live up to their testimony, and they blaspheme the name of God. They become a stumbling block and an offense to people that would enter in. Just like the Pharisees in the days of Jesus, He says, you do not go in yourselves and you, do, you hinder those that are trying to enter in. And when we do not do what God's Word teaches us we ought to do as Christians and try to live a godly life before God, now we all are sinners. None of us are perfect, and we all stumble and fall, and we all make mistakes, but we can do our best to live according to the will of God. The Bible says, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And if we'll put this into practice, well, then uh, we'll be a testimony, in spite of our weaknesses and faults and failures. And if if we've done some thing that's wrong, if we've sinned, let us be men and women enough to say, well, I was wrong about that, or that that was a sin. We don't have to uh, go around and apologize to the whole world, but if the opportunity comes up and someone says, well, uh, brother or sister, you were wrong in doing that, face up to the fact and say, well, let me consider the situation, and if you really are, admit it. But let's don't go around accusing one another of how bad they are and try to justify ourselves in what we do. You see, we don't have to tell the other fellow. God has a way of telling the other fellow, the other Christian brother or sister. We don't have to tell them how wrong they are and what they're doing. If I do something wrong, the, Lord, the Lord's able to tell me. I talk to him every day and listen to him, and he's able to tell you. And sometimes what you think the other fellow's doing wrong may not be at all. Now, I don't mean that there's one standard for one fellow and one for another. I'm talking about the circumstances may so be that you don't understand all that is involved. And you may be condemning a person when he may be perfectly justified in acting or doing as he has done. See, we have a, a tendency to, to, to uh, come to a conclusion before all the evidence is in, don't we? Let's get all the evidence in before we start making any judgments. And then it's not our business. Paul says, it's a light thing that I should be judged of you. He says, judge nothing. He says, I'm not even able to judge myself. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. That's when we're to judge. Let's hurry on. Our time's just about gone. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. For circumcision verily profiteth thou keepeth the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. In other words, your circumcision didn't make you a keeper of the law. If you're a breaker of the law... It wasn't even counted that you were a Jew. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? In other words, if the Gentile keeps the things of God and does them by faith, he be, he'll be counted as just as good in the sight of God as the Jew that had the written law. See, the Gentile was called the uncircumcised. In verse 27, "...and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law." You Jews that have literally the right of circumcision, and you have obeyed that, and if you have not kept the law of God, then you are condemned by even doing what you have done. Verse 28, "...for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh." You see, God wants something better than just the mere rite and ritual of circumcision as the Jew had received. He wanted them to be in in all reality what they should have been by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says that it won't won't amount to anything. Verse 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. God wants to to, uh, have something to do with the heart instead of the flesh. And both Jew and Gentile. And he says, in the Spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. So God wants the heart matter, doesn't he? He doesn't care about the outward right or ritualism. But he wants us to be right with him in the heart. The uncircumcised heart is the unrepentant heart. The circumcised heart is that which God has taken a hold of and cut away the evil inwardly of the child of God and giving him a new life and a new nature.